0: I'm Hemant Metta,
1: And I'm Jessica Blumke.
0: And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com.
1: By the way, we now have a merchandise shop on the website. So if you want your podcast swag, some shirts, mugs, baby onesies, Hemant, you going to get a baby onesie for your kiddo? Of course. Yeah. Go to our website and click on the
0: store tab. We're brought to you today by Foundation Marketing. If you own a small business, then you know how frustrating advertising can be. Foundation Marketing offers all-encompassing solutions backed by 20 years' experience. This includes professional web design, graphic design, printing, and online marketing solutions. They are a certified Google partner and offer free consultation. Visit them online at fmkg.net. Let them know you were sent by the Friendly Atheist podcast, and you'll get 10% off any sale. They're also donating 20% of all sales driven by this podcast to the Clergy Project and Foundation Beyond Belief, 10% each. Once again, check Check them out at fmkg.net. Kelly Carlin is the author of A Carlin Home Companion, an autobiography and one-woman show that talks about growing up with her famous father, comedian George Carlin. She's also the host of the podcast Waking from the American Dream and a speaker at the upcoming Reason Rally. Kelly, thank you so much.
2: Oh, you guys, thanks for
0: having me. Absolutely. So we're we're both super excited to talk to you. And part of the reason, and I think I could say this for a lot of atheists too, is we are so familiar with George's comedy routines and stuff. I mean, I have I could recite them from memory. I've heard them Please that many that. times.
1: Can we just make this an hour episode and <laughs> so have you just do a Carlin Bit?
0: After we're after yes. we're done. <laughs> My I guess the question uh that I really want to ask is. Is the persona that we saw on stage the same persona you knew back at home, or was he a different oh, guy back home?
2: No, definitely not. No, no, very much a stage persona. Uh, he used the theatrics of performing to uh, to get his point across. No, he was. A, I mean, I mean, it depended on the era and the decade, and if he was sober or not, um, and oh. um, and and what he was doing. But in general, overall. Um, he was a pretty introverted person who, you know, uh, just wanted to be left alone to work in his house and write. (laughs) I'm (laughs) curious if that's hard um, to be
1: a a famous,
2: I'm sorry, go ahead. That, that's, that's really who he was. Um, That, um, I mean, the mind obviously was there, but the, um, and, you know, there were aspects of him that were kind of assertive and aggressive in some ways, but he was never on. He wasn't one of those people. He did not want to be the life of the party. He didn't even like going to parties. Um, and uh, he he really was a writer. I mean, he really was a writer's mentality. He was in his head a lot. He was always writing down notes and or working on his routines and working on his craft and um, and, you know, it used to drive my mother crazy because she would just try to get him to go to a movie or something, like a normal person. <laughs> um, and uh, so he was, yeah, he was a bit of a workaholic.
0: I mean, you could tell because he talks about language so right. much in his routines. When he's, what was his, uh, how did he practice this stuff? I mean, is he like looking in a mirror and trying to make sure he has the right faces to go along with his act? Is he performing <laughs> stuff in front of you and and your mother?
2: No, no. If you talk to any stand-up, the only place you can do stand-up is in front of an audience. There's just no other, there is no other way to do it. Uh, No, he, he, like I said, he wasn't a person who was on at home. He didn't practice. Um, Yeah, no, he he did his work on stage. And like most comics, he worked it out on stage Mm -hmm. Um, uh, in his latter years. And, you know, there's a lot of interviews out there with him where he talks about his process, but briefly... Um, he would bring pages onto the stage uh, when he was working for his next HBO show. And he would sometimes at the beginning of those processes where he was just working on a new bit, he would be reading part of it because the the, the words were so important to him. And if he hadn't memorized the piece yet or hadn't quite worked it out yet, he would say to the audience, you're going to help me do my homework tonight. <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm going to do my comedy off page a little bit tonight. So... I think that's
1: really interesting to know that he wrote things out because when I uh, I do a tiny bit of like bullshit Chicago com- uh, stand-up comedy and it seems that there's two kinds of people. There's the, the kinds of people who just write like a word to remind them and they just kind of riff off it or they really – write like, and, and that's what I do. I'm, I'm a writer so write I write out, out what I acts. want to say because I like the way I say it. I'm, I'm really impressed that he writes all that out because his rhythm is great and obviously that comes from his, his strong writing and obviously a ton yeah. of
2: research. Yes, and, and then working it out on stage. You can only right. find the rhythm, as you know, as a performer, on stage in front of the audience. You know, you, you can try things and think it's going to work, but until you do it, um, you just don't know how it's going to land. And then sometimes it even takes time. I mean, I, I know with my solo show, there have been uh, sections of it and beats in it where, you know, I've been doing the show for a certain amount of years, and it's like suddenly like I get like, oh, that's the rhythm of that section, yeah. and that's what that's about. You know, and it can take that long to really figure out, you know, where the material is inside of you. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't do stand-up, so mine's more of an acting thing. But, sure. but, you know, even when I am doing jokes in my show, you know, you you have to find the sweet spot. And you oh, can yeah. only do that with a live audience.
1: Oh, yeah. Or the joke comes somewhere where you're not expecting it. Like, you think this is going to be the laugh line, and you're like, oh, <laughs> not laughing. going to keep powering through this one.
2: Oh um, my god, absolutely. That has happened to me so many times yep. in my show where I'm like, they're laughing at that
0: thing, like, I didn't even
2: know <laughs> exactly. that was a thing. I will <laughs> so
0: modify a, the bit oh, and now I'll it's do it a exactly. thing in my yeah.
2: head. I got to
1: remember people are going to laugh
0: there.
1: I'm curious if it was difficult for your dad cuz I didn't realize that his act on stage was kind of a stage persona in the way that we we see some um, some stand-ups do cuz it feels very genuine. It feels like just the way he kind of talks well, to people. Yeah,
2: I mean it is part of his personality. Sure, of course. You kn- when you know when you go on stage oh, yeah. Right, yeah. you're not exactly who you are off stage. You're you're kind of you're turned up a few notches, mm-hmm. you know, and all those faces he did, and all that strident anger and outrage. I mean, who could walk around off stage like that? That would be you'd look like a psychotic person. So what, you, um, so what you're
0: telling us is that when he was off stage, he was deeply religious. <laughs> yes.
2: Yes. Well, no, no. Not religious. Uh, he's definitely a spiritual man, but not yeah. religious, for sure, not that. <laughs> well, what
0: was that spirituality like? Because, again, he is so tied to this atheism idea, or anyway, or at least critical of religion. Yeah. So when you say he was spiritual, in a sense, what was his spirituality like? Well,
2: he, I mean... Uh once again, he's talked about it before. I mean, you know, he he pondered a lot of this stuff. He took acid in the 60s. That blew his mind, (laughs) made him see that he was, you know, really literally at one with everything. We're all atoms. We're all made out of stardust. And, um, you know, he talked about on stage this idea of the big electron, which is actually something his brother Patrick came up with, um, that, you know, is kind of that idea of you know, that everything's energy and we're all energy and who understands this energy? And is there an intelligence behind it or not? We don't have any proof of that, but I think he was certainly in the school of people who left that open as a possibility. He self-identified as an agnostic. Uh, He, I mean, although I know, I understand the importance of using the word atheist and, and how that all runs, but he felt that atheism you know, itself is a dogma, and he doesn't like—he didn't like any kind of dogmas. And um, he was always in the "I don't know" category. Loved the idea of mystery in life, mm-hmm. um, and was always curious. You know, was very curious about my own practice. I'm—I've been practicing Zen Buddhism for almost twenty years now. Wow. Um, I've been—you know—I studied—you uh, know—Joseph Campbell mythology, and—and. And, um, I have a master's in Jungian psychology, so I'm very interested in archetypal psychology and kind of all that goes along with that. Not necessarily, there's no personal God involved in any of that, but, but, you know, really holding on like, you know, what is, what is our relationship to the transcendent? What is this experience when we have it of transcendence? And I know he had that experience a few times and and we, he and I would talk about that and, you know, what does it mean? And um, what's real and what isn't and what doesn't matter what's real and what isn't in the end. And, you know, and he always believed in never taking anyone's comfort away from them, but certainly uh, you know, if someone's comfort comes knocking at your door and someone wants to shove it down your throat, yeah. then, then that's where I draw the line. I don't know about you people. But um, so, yeah, you know, he was, a, he was a, a seeker. He was a seeker his whole life. I mean, you know, and always curious about what is all of this? How does it all work, you know, as we all are?
0: Let me ask you a uh, personal question, if you don't mind. You have this unique experience where you are the child of someone who is world famous, and I wonder what that does to your own identity growing up. I mean, you loved your dad, sure, but I wonder if there was uh, any point in your life where you're like, "I wish I had a different last name."
2: Um, you, you know, I, I it's interesting. Um, I've had many different relationships with my father's fame and his incredible genius and success. Um, you know, you, you name it, and I've felt it. I've I've worshipped my father. I've hidden my own light because of his genius. I've um, uh, at times uh, been frustrated by it because his genius took him away from me a lot. He was on the road all the time and he was a workaholic and a very driven artist. Um, And I feel like in in this time in my life now, it'll be eight years since my dad died next month. And, um, you know, it's, uh, although I've had an incredible opportunity to talk about my own, path of recovery in and and our families surviving the addictions we survived and the insanity we all survived. Um, hold on a second. There's a helicopter here. Hold on. That's <laughs> okay. I couldn't figure out what that sound was. I thought Sorry, it was on RS. I live by right the airport. It's and right. um, <laughs> uh, you know I think part of it is is that um, you know I I'm still invisible to people. People want to talk about my dad. They're really not interested in me. <laughs> uh, or on social media, they need to, and and this is the way people relate to me. I get it and have some connection to my dad. I understand all of that psychologically, but you know, it's after a while it's, it's, it's painful because I've been invisible my whole life. Mm -hmm. And, um, so it's frustrating to be out in the world and doing your own work and, you know, having written a, a, you know, my own, my own memoir and radio shows and all sorts of things. And, um, and still being in a shadow. You know, it, it, it is a frustrating thing. And I know that partially I've invited that because I haven't turned away from his legacy. I haven't mm-hmm. turned away from walking through the fire of who my father is. You know, once he died, I could have disappeared and never said anything in the media about my father or never represented his legacy in any other way. But I decided that that's the chicken shit kind of way out of it. <laughs> and that if I was going to do it, I was going to walk through it because at least once I knew I walked through it, I was through it and I was on the other side of it. And, and that's kind of where I've been the last, you know, couple of months since my memoir came out last fall. And, um, you know, and I'm kind of looking forward in my life. I'm no longer looking backwards. And, uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's a real, it's a real dance. It's a real dance. And it's, and it's an honor to be my dad's daughter. I mean, fuck, I have half, half of me is his DNA. It's pretty cool, you know? And, my mom was an amazing human being, too, and I have her DNA, too. So, you know, um, it's it's an honor and a privilege also, mostly, um, because it's given me an incredible life and a lot of amazing um, aspects of me that I get to play with now, and it's fun.
1: Yeah, I have to imagine it's a really hard line to walk between, you know, I wrote a memoir about growing up with my dad or, you know, I had this one-woman one, one woman show about my dad, but at the same time, like, you want to be respected as an individual as your own person yeah, and that has to be really hard to, to watch my,
2: my book isn't about my dad my book is about me right, my dad right. is my dad right exactly <laughs> <book>. you're right <laughs> uh yeah do publishers want to make sure that there's a picture of him on the cover of it mm-hmm. yes they do does that sell more books yes does that get a conversation going yes mm-hmm. um and with my solo show you know like the first half of the show folk, so, you know it's it's me up to like age 18 So, yeah, when you're a kid, it's about you and your family. And Mm. my family and I were very enmeshed. I'm an only child. So a big part of my story is that enmeshment and being stuck inside the family dynamics. And then the second half of the show is all about me as an adult trying to find my way out of that enmeshment. Mm. Um, You know, but still, of course, enmeshed or not, we're still in relationship with our parents. You know, it's a complicated thing, these family things.
1: (laughs) I hear you. (laughs) Um. So, do you have any uh, comedians who you follow today who you think sort of carry on, if not his legacy, certainly his his voice or his attitude or his sort of anti-establishment nature a little bit?
2: Um. Yeah. For, for sure. Um. I think. I mean, one of my favorites. That. I mean, there's a there's a there's a, a good sized group of them who are doing great work. But I mean, one of my favorites is Doug Stanhope. I mean. Just a person who
0: Hilarious. Um,
2: just, I mean, the, it just takes audiences across the line over and over again. Um, and it's daunting at times to listen to his comedy. But I just, such respect for that. Um, you to, know, To anyone I, listening,
0: I by the way, if you haven't heard Doug's uh, stand-up, if you want to talk about aggressive atheist on stage, there's your guy. <laughs> he is yeah, no holds yeah. barred
2: and his whole thing abortion is green there's like a youtube video of him doing abortion <laughs> is green oh my god it's fantastic and yeah i mean he's one that really sticks out for me that it's like you know he's he could he could care less <laughs> what people think about him i just i i just love him to bits um but I mean, there's all sorts of people. I mean, you know, you know, more mainstream people. I mean, Louis Black's out there. Bill Maher's out there. You know, they're doing their work. Um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I'm a huge fan of Louis C.K. Sure. Um, Louis does slightly different type of material. But Louis still very culturally observational and mm-hmm. calls us on things and has such a beautiful, unique angle on things. Um you know, I mean, there's it's it's kind of a golden age of comedy right now. It's, yeah, it really it's kind is of exciting.
1: Well, and podcasts make things so e- it make it makes it so easy for comedians to get their voice out there without having to schlep around the country as much. <laughs>
2: yeah, but you don't get paid as much. Also, we <laughs> yes, know we're, we're aware. <laughs> we're we're <laughs> soups are aware.
0: Um, I want to I, I want to <laughs> come back to Louis Kane a little bit, but let me ask you: Where do you differ from your father in terms of at least the George we knew on stage? Uh, what did you guys, like, fight about, at least on a philosophical level, you know, on those types of things? Where do you differ, uh, politically speaking, or or any of those types of ideas?
2: Uh, you know, the only kind of divergence we had was that—and as I get older, I, I understand his perspective more, but <laughs> I, I, I've decided not quite yet to give up on the species. I mean, there's a lot of aspects— <laughs> of the human species that i am in awe of our hubris um especially when it comes to the planet and the environment um but i still believe that you know i believe in the evolution of consciousness I, you know we've seen it over you know 6000 years that no matter what things you know people are more evolved consciously than they were six thousand years ago. Yes, we can <laughs> still act like reptilian ape horrors to each other. You know, I mean, you know, gr- g- greed and survival and all of that is still here. But um, but we've also, you know, we, things have changed. And and so I've, you know, I think coming, um, you know, twenty five years younger than my dad, so a couple of, you know, generation younger. Um, uh, you know, didn't wasn't disappointed by the sixties like he was, so I still had hope in the world. Um, but I understand his stance. I understand the beauty of the stance of like fuck hope. I understand what that that the kind of the power and courage that can give you and the clarity it can give you. Um, but you know, when he would say stuff like you know I've given up on the species and stuff, and and I confronted him on it. I said to him, you know, I said, well, Dad. Here's the deal. If you've really given up, then why bother leaving your house and going on a stage? Yeah. And I busted him on it. and it, you know, and it was interesting. after that, he would then talk in public about this because people would talk to him about his cynicism, and he would say it's not really cynicism. it's it's more outrage. And he said, you know, and if you scratch the heart of a cynic, you will find a disappointed idealist mm. and And that's who he was. He was a, he was a man who'd been broke. He, his heart had been broken by by the people of the 60s who became yuppie greedy assholes in the 80s yeah. and he kind of watched his people you know sell out and that broke his heart and that's you know and 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 I you know I saw it too but I didn't have as much stake in that generation sure. so You're not
0: you're not making a list of people you'd like to kill. <laughs>
2: No, uh, no, although I could. I mean, we all could. I think it would be a great, I think it's a good exercise yeah. actually to kind of. Mental exercise. our you know, next episode. Being a Jungian, I'm about getting in touch with every aspect of your personality, <laughs> mm-hmm. including the murderous rage aspect. Yeah. So, you know, if you need to make a list like that, I think it's actually healthy in the end to have your list. <laughs> For sure. I mean, I feel like I used to hear my dad
1: talk about that all the time. My dad was born in 49, I think, and he. the area i grew up was all irish catholics and he Mm -hmm. used to come home and he's like i'm sitting at the bar with these men and i'm thinking what the fuck happened to you like we were the we were the flower generation like what are you why are you mad at everybody right now and i don't know what it is about people getting older but they get mean and bitter and
2: republican
0: that happens yeah yeah
2: you know i i think you know when you i don't know how old you guys are how old are you i'm 30
0: Thirty-three, yeah. something like that. Question mark? Oh. Yeah, children, have to think about it. Children, children. I know. When
2: you when you get into your forties, and then, and I know I'm, I'm going to be 53 this year. There's something about being on the planet that many decades where you've kind of been around the merry-go-round a few times and you've seen it all. And it's not a bitterness. It's it, it, it is a disappointment. It's a, like you know. I mean, part of it's like, oh, we've been here again. We, we've seen this before. But, you know, you're like, yeah, God, 25 years ago, man, I had some real hope for this stuff. And um, really, I mean, now we're like, you know, it's Trump and Hillary. Like, this is, you know, it's just like... This is fascinating, Trump, yeah. really. I mean, Cruz, it's just insane. Chris so, just dropped um, out literally
1: like 20 minutes ago. Did you hear about that, Kelly? Yes, I did.
2: <laughs> yes, I literally I did. heard right before
1: we called you. I'm really excited. So now people know yes, when we're recording. Yes. I'm
2: trying to kind of, you know, process it.
0: <laughs> Still a damned if you do, damned it, if you don't, but...
1: But, I mean, like you were saying, Kelly, you can even see in the Democratic side of a lot of young people are pro-Bernie. This is something Hemant and I kind of talked about a few weeks ago is young people are really idealist and really pro-Bernie. And I know I'm only 30, but I'm like, that's I like I like his ideals, but I'm not confident that he can get any of it, get any of it done. Oh, my God, maybe I'm going to be Republican when I get older.
0: Yeah, you're all. Is it going to yes. get worse?
2: Yeah, you know, I think it's just a little bit of pragmatism. I mean, even Tom Hayden. I mean, Tom Hayden, who was the man who led— the student democrat society in the 60s i mean this is the man who marched at the convention i mean uh-huh. you know tom hayden is like the most you know he was a radical radical on um, you know nixon's enemy list radical <laughs> and he's even said i love bernie too but we just watched 8 years of obstructionism right. i mean we know the fucking reality of this yeah. of this mm-hmm. you know system now it you know th- this is the way it is and and i love bernie too i mean i love bernie i you know i'm not a, a fan of Hillary, but I love a lot of things about her. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, but yeah, it's, uh, and I think Bernie is necessary. And so is Trump. I mean, these people are scaring the shit out of the millionaire class. And rightly so, because, you know, they've been ignored, The, the working class has been ignored for decades by both Sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. And um, this is what you get. You get pitchforks and torches at the end.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, democracy.
2: <laughs> so Isn't beautiful. it
0: beautiful? I know. As, <laughs> as you're growing up, is do you listen to any of your dad's old bits and you're like, that resonates with you a lot more now? And maybe you didn't understand it 10, 20 years ago, but now you're like, oh, I get where he's coming from.
2: No, no, I don't. I would never. Uh, no, I cannot sit around listening to my dad. <laughs> I mean, Fair if point. I come across them yes. or if I'm working on a project and I have to listen to them, <laughs> great. But um, That is true.
0: I don't think I would ever listen to anything my dad you know, says. That's such an amazing like, reaction. Yeah, like,
2: oh, God. Yeah. You know, trust me, I've heard it all before. Sure. And, and no, I, I I got it all when he was saying it. I understood it all uh, the moment it came out of his mouth. Um yeah, no. And people on social media send me videos of my dad and I think, really? <laughs> "Have you like, seen I don't this ever seen, it. seen <laughs> it? Like it's, it's just it's a little astounding to me. But like I said, I understand they're trying to connect with me and they're trying to connect with him and and I and I appreciate that part of it. But uh yeah, no. I mean, you know, it's really fun right now because you know, he's all over the internet and people especially during this whole election cycle or you know, there's a certain amount of them that they're playing that he's been, you know, that certain routines that he did that talk about the owners of the of the country and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And yeah, I mean, he was a prophetic man. He said things 10, 15, 20 years ahead of time that people yeah. weren't. It wasn't part of the the, the mainstream discourse yet. And, and yet, but that was his job, and that he knew that was his job was always to be on the edge, and always taking the audience across the line, and you know, and doing it in such a way that they'll come with him. You know, so. He was doing his job well, being such a pr- prophetic uh, philosopher.
0: Let me ask you a question. If if this is unfair for me to ask, I'll, we'll cut this later. But I'm curious. I don't know if you're the like intellectual property owner of the stuff your dad did, but I'm wondering if people have ever used his legacy in a way that you felt was unfair or wrong, and you felt like, I don't know if there was any legal issues ever or anything you felt like, you know, that's— totally misappropriating what he stood for, what he did, that you, you were just context. disappointed about.
2: There, there, I, I, am, I am the intellectual property owner of the, the estate, and I am, uh, not the estate, but I, I am, and, and my father's business partner and manager. We own all the intellectual property, all the HBO shows at least. Um, and yes, um, the one thing that pisses me off more than anything else is the climate change deniers um, using his planet is fine. Right. Bit. Because they think it says that he, they think he's saying, oh, humans have no power, therefore, how could they have possibly caused climate change? And that piece is not about that at all. That piece was written in '91, just after the Reagan era, just after the boom of the yuppies, uh, just as he's finding his political voice in a a very strident way. It's one of the, it's the second show where he's really kind of laying it on the line politically. And what he's talking about is, is that the people that, you know, these quote unquote environmentalists at that time, for the most part, aren't interested in saving the planet. They're interested in saving themselves and, and, and making their lives comfortable. And his point is that if you're if you're recycling some cans and some plastic, which he did, by the way, even though know, he <laughs> made fun of it, um, that's not going to be enough because the planet is faced all sorts of things, and the planet, in the end, as we know, will be okay. You know, and he says it though she's going to shake us off like a bad case of fleas. And, you know, and, and he goes through this long list of things, you know, floods and volcanoes and just all this stuff, ice ages and da 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 You know, now the scary thing is, is that the, the climate scientists are now talking, and a lot of people talk about the planet in such a way, and I'd love to hear my dad's take on this, that we've reached now something called the Anthropocene Age, which is that man has absolutely changed the nature of what Earth is through the pulling of uh, resources and pollution and overpopulation, and that there is some sort of a real change that has happened, and that you know, if humans survive it, who knows? Um, it's going to take a long time once fossil fuels are gone for this planet to, to rebalance itself. You know, this it, it is a huge ecosystem; it knows how to do that ultimately. Um, but it just I, steam comes out of my ears when I see some climate denier Facebook fuck um, put that clip up and be like, see, even George Carlin. And I'm like, you, you, he would shred, he would pull your head off and shit down your neck if he could, person. But he's not here to do that. So I'm going to, like, so and you should I'll do put some Carlin
0: pants <laughs> on them. So oh my God. That, that strikes me as like, okay, this is a philosophical misuse of what my father said. I don't know that there's anything you could do about it except get there's mad. Nothing, and nothing, there's nothing, nothing you could do, do about it. it. I what mean, a-
2: we can pull the clip off of YouTube, which we've done a million times, which we, we've we tried. You know, at first we we didn't pull any of the clips off for years because we just wanted them to run free. And, the, you know, my dad had just died when, like, social media kind of went insane and the YouTube went insane at that point. Yeah. Um, when my dad was alive, he didn't like his stuff being appropriated. He did not like his stuff being out there for free. He had to make a living off of it. Um, it was just starting to change in 2008 when he died, um, and now lately we've started to create some more control. And now YouTube has given intellectual property owners like myself ways to make money off of anybody's usage of it, which is you know they'll slam, they'll slam an ad on it and we'll get mm-hmm. we'll get the revenue for it. So. It's so, it's a it's getting a, to be a weird world.
0: That that lead, that was where I was going with this, which is there are so many clips of him online. But you're saying you're basically not saying take them down. You're just saying okay, it's our intellectual property, so we'll make the revenue off of that. But you're not like. There are some clips out there that are not run by anyone associated with your yeah, family. Yeah, we,
2: we we about once every other month we go through and we try to do a sweep of the most egregious ones. Right, if people are putting like whole shows up and things like that. That's bullshit. Right. Um. You know, we we try to to try to do a clean sweep of some of these people. We try to balance between being you know being with 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 the masses, you know, which Dad loved, um, but also knowing that you know it's we. Still in this country, we do get to have intellectual property, um, and there is there is a case for it. Um, so yeah, but it's it's a balancing act. It is.
0: I wanted to ask you uh, about one particular clip, and we'll put this in the show notes too. But we mentioned Louis C.K. earlier. There is this amazing video of him. This was this took place a few years ago at a. Uh, I forgot if it was a benefit or a gala. In... It was
2: at it was at the New York Public Library. Yeah. It was a whole evening. Uh, there was about uh, seven of us involved. Uh, all of us, a bunch of us, performed different things. Uh, mm-hmm. You should watch the whole thing. The whole thing is gorgeous. The whole thing is great.
0: And, and Louise yeah, Cain's it's a, particular. It's a great
2: evening. And then we invited Louis to come up at the end um to to kind of be the comedian and
0: he ended up crying on stage. <laughs> yeah, no. And he gave a beautiful speech about what George Carlin meant to him, but one of the things that yeah. he says in that speech that I wanted to bring up is he said that one of the reasons he really wanted to do uh, that evening go to the to the WNYC stuff is because you gave him a call and he said to himself, that's George's daughter calling me. And I have daughters. And mm-hmm. I, he kind of resonated with that whole thing because the whole speech is kind of how his career in a way has, has paralleled what George Carlin did. And I was so curious to hear what you were thinking when he was talking about that or what your reaction to that was. Because, you know, after the clip ends, I don't know what happens. Yeah. But, like, y- yeah, that's such a beautiful um... thing, the, the way he put that.
2: Yeah. You know, it's funny. It was, uh, it was within a year of my dad's death and I was still pretty much out of my body at that time going, mm-hmm. Oh my God, I'm hanging out with people like Louis CK, <laughs> which I know kind of sounds weird to some people, but you know, I'm starstruck as anybody. Um, and I was living this kind of very weird life where I was living my, in some ways I was living my father's life and, but I hadn't done anything to really be there except be this, what they call comedy royalty, which is a very funny thing when people say that to me. <laughs> um, and, um, but yeah, I, I'm touched by that. I'm touched with comedians who have daughters. I'm, I'm touched by, by how that resonated for him. And, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's fun. There's a couple of times I've encountered Louis. I encountered him once with his daughters and we had such a great moment because i said to the older one i said you know come find me when you're 17 and we'll have a real conversation <laughs> and and louis eyes just i mean he he lit up and he teared up you know because you know he gets it you know he's a dad of a daughter and dads of you know dads of daughters uh, it's a very very beautiful certain kind of a relationship the father daughter relationship so um yeah i was i mean the whole evening was so beautiful but louis for him to go up there and become so emotional, it was just, it really did show me the power of my father's presence in people's lives. And the, the the thing that I've gotten more than anything from being the person who receives that love now for my father is that he changed people's lives through his thinking and through his speaking. And um, that's why I believe in the evolution of consciousness, because I do believe that we can have an impact on each other human to human. You know, when we share our, our truth and our ideas and our perspectives and, and help wake each other up, I believe it's the only hope we have on this planet is, is to do that for, with each other and for each other. And so I am, you know, I that's the legacy that I'm carrying on through my own work. Am I a stand-up? No, I don't do that. But in everything I approach, whether it's writing or speaking or performing or or podcasting, you know, I I, tr- I try to hold that that I'm just here to bring my particular unique angle, you know, of of my humanity to all of this, and that maybe it'll re- resonate with someone else's humanity, and then and then well and then we both feel a little less alone here and. And I, I do believe that's how ideas are spread and that's how consciousness is raised. Um, you know, I mean, that's how it works. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a really it's it's a touching thing to be a part of that legacy and, and to witness it and to, to really be able to witness it in my dad's effect on other people's lives. It's it's a profound thing.
1: You know, Hemant has a 6-month-old uh, daughter, so I hope he's taking notes on all this. All
0: of them. Taking lots <laughs> of notes. <laughs> you talk to her when she's 17. I don't know what she's going to tell you. <laughs> We're working on getting her to sit up right now, so
2: <laughs> baby steps. Oh, I know. Awesome. <laughs> she's What's really her cute. Name?
0: Sienna. Oh.
1: She's half brown, beautiful.
0: half white, so we figured it fits.
1: She's real cute. <laughs> She threw up on me a couple weeks ago. It was, yeah. it was an honor. <laughs> well
2: done. Thank, Thank you. you.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> one one uh, final question for you is uh, you are going to be speaking at the Reason Rally. Do you know what you're going to be talking about?
2: You know, I don't. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm working actually on my speech. I'm going to be speaking also at um, Imagine No Religion 6 up in Vancouver, British Columbia. Yeah, Fun. good people up uh, there. Yeah, I'm really excited. Later this month, I'm going to be up there, and they've asked me to, to talk about, um, you know, kind of you know my own search for meaning and 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 what's that mean to me. And um, I was I heard Liz actually from the Reason Rally on your podcast, yeah. and um, and I was really touched by what she was saying about how this movement, you know if it's gonna, if it's gonna spread and ignite, it needs to move beyond identity politics and into values. And for me, that really resonated because I've never, and even in my house with my dad and our family, I I never, I've never identified myself as an atheist. Um, You know, I've had a real long journey through my relationship with God or whatever that is, and all the different definitions of it and finding my way to all of that. And um and you know have obviously come to a stance where like okay yeah there's definitely not a guy with a beard in the sky personal god kind of a thing <laughs> creator kind of a thing um so i definitely am an atheist but i i've never needed to have that conversation or start a conversation with that word whereas there are people who absolutely do and want to and do that work in the world and you know bless them i say that ironically <laughs> and not for for doing that work um so I know that I you know I come at it from a values perspective you know what's what's meaningful to you and how do you find meaning in your life and you know and how do you do it in a way that you can use both your reasonable rational mind but also use your irrational mind which for me is in the category of um, the imagination and and what is it about the imagination that's important to being a, a human and is important um, you know for you know, things like science and things like that. And, you know, using imagination for, for good, not for evil, I guess you could call it. So, um, I, you know, I probably only have six minutes at the Reason Rally and I don't know what I'm going to say yet, but I think I really want to talk from my heart and just talk to people's hearts about, you know, what's meaningful to them and, and why we're here and and what's important about us gathering as a people. And um, because that heart space is really important to me. And, honoring that is my, how I honor the sacredness of life, you know, that, that we're here and that it's, it's pretty amazing that we're here and we have consciousness and our eyeballs work and all that. (laughs) So, you know, that's like, you know, that's the miracle thing or whatever, you know, but it's not a miracle, but it's a miracle thing, you know, (laughs) so.
0: For your sake, then I hope you're not following someone whose entire speech is fuck religion. (laughs)
2: I hope I do because it would be great because I think all these voices I mean I think that's the point of it of the movement now is you know there's a really wide perspective here and people come at it from all different angles and if we're gonna if we're gonna really make a difference in this country and really get you know the insanity of religion out of our civic life Mm -hmm. you know we need to include you know people who make meaning in different ways and um you know, so I'm excited to be part of that conversation, whatever that looks like. And I'm okay with people who say fuck religion. I think that's an important <laughs> stance. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, you know, I just like we were talking about, you know, Ted Cruz. Thank God he's out of the race. You know, Bye. Donald Trump may be crazy, but Ted Cruz wants the apocalypse to happen. Yep. And he really believes it. Well, that's he's Lucifer. So. Oh, he's that's the terrifying. Zodiac killer.
0: So and Zodiac. you
2: know, it's like
1: good. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. Get him okay. out of here! Bye, <laughs> Ooh, yay, yay. bye. Uh, I hate him.
0: But now we lose Carly Fiorina, and that makes everyone cry. God, did you it? see
1: them try to hold hands uh, the other day?
2: It's, it's okay. You, could, you can, you <laughs> can find her in other places. I'll, I'll get over it. Don't in worry. My heart. <laughs> <laughs> now off a I'm stage. You for Christmas, The Carly Fiorina <laughs> Sprite Fiorini T-shirt. Please, want it. <laughs> um,
0: well, uh, Kelly, thank you so much uh, for your time. Your book is A Carlin Home Companion. We'll have links to all of the stuff we talked about, the the couple comedy bits we talked about, too, in the show notes. Uh, thanks so much for your time, and hopefully we'll get to see you at the Reason Rally, too.
2: Oh, we are definitely partying at the Reason awesome. Rally. Awesome. it, I'm not going to okay. be there.
0: Me and you, Kelly, <laughs> we are partying at this rally, and I'll That's bring right, the six-month-old. I'm sure she'll be drinking vodka by the I'm time.
1: officiating my best friend's wedding <laughs> that day. That's I can't go. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com.
0: We were brought to you today by Foundation Marketing. If you own a small business, then you know how frustrating advertising can be. Foundation Marketing offers all-encompassing solutions backed by 20 years' experience. This includes professional web design, graphic design, printing, and online marketing solutions. They are a certified Google partner and offer free consultation. Visit them online at fmkg.net. Let them know you were sent by the Friendly Atheist podcast and you'll get 10% off any sale. They're also donating 20% of all sales driven by this podcast to the Clergy Project and Foundation Beyond Belief, 10% each. Once again, check them out at fmkg.net.
1: This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois. The music was composed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at patreon.com slash Hemant. That's he, man, T. We appreciate your support. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at friendlyatheistpodcast at gmail.com.
0: I'm Hemant Mehta.
1: And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you join us next time.